Welcome. Welcome back to, what is it, session three? Session three of the War of the Ring. Uh, I am, uh, we're going to be doing a lot of wizard talk tonight. Of course, we're getting through what is basically through the end of book three uh, of the War of the Rings. So we'll, so we'll be looking at the original draft material of the um, Palantir, so basically the, the confrontation with uh, Saruman, which we were sort of in the middle of at the end of our last class. And... Um, and then through the development of the uh, of the uh, Palantir. So, anyway, so that's going to be great. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I'm gonna, uh, uh, I, well, announcements first, and then I'll explain what I'm going to do. <laughs> so, okay, a um, couple quick announcements. First, uh, next week is the uh, uh, the the deadline for the call for papers for Mythmoot Five. Mythmoot 5 remembers in June, June 21st to 24th in Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, if it's possible for you to attend, I strongly encourage you to attend. I've been talking a lot, of course, about regional events, and I'm super excited about our regional events. They are so much fun. It is so great to be able to get together for a day with people to connect with folks that I've never gotten a chance to meet before. For instance, London Moot, April 28th. So glad to be coming to Europe and being able to uh, hang out with folks who can't make it over here. Um, that's all. Uh, that's all awesome stuff. The regional moots. The whole point of the regional moots is to have small, local, sort of smaller and more local events, which can be easier for people to access when they can't make it to Mythmoot. Um, so, like I said, London Moot, 28th of April is going to be great. Yana, so glad you got your tickets. That's great. Uh, I, I can't wait to. Uh, I can't wait to uh, uh, to hang out with you in London next month. However, um, Mythmoot, Mythmoot is the big deal, right? Mythmoot is the big one. Uh, it's a four-day, the, the others are small little one-day conferences, again, designed to be accessible to people in different regions. Mythmoot is our big annual, uh, you know, national and international conference compared to like a, you know, a one-day event, which the other events are. This is a four-day event. Uh, it is, uh, Awesome! It's just, I can't even tell you how awesome Mythmoot is. Uh, last year's Mythmoot was the coolest conference experience of my entire life, and this year's looks even better. It's going to be so cool. Um, so, um, uh, if you your last chance, however, to submit a proposal, if you want to read a paper or you want to suggest a panel discussion, basically, you know, if you want to if, if you want to participate and or you want to see, uh, you know, to sort of help to organize something and make something happen at Mythmoot. There's a deadline for that because we're going to be coming out with the uh, the schedule and everything pretty soon, which is going to be exciting. But uh, anyway, so uh, the, the as it the fifteenth of March is a deadline for that. Uh, go to the to the the MythMoot page. Just go to the signumuniversity.org page. Scroll down a bit. You'll see MythMoot there on our events section, and you can click there and get all the information you need on the call for papers there. So that's coming up this next week. And don't forget about London Moot. If you're in Europe, you should come because it's going to be great and uh, uh, and easy to access and comparatively inexpensive and everything. Uh, and I can't wait to meet you uh, if you're going to be able to come. Uh, my last announcement, which is a, a relatively small announcement, but just put it on your, you know, make a note, put it on your calendars. This coming weekend is daylight savings time for most of America. Um, so are, if you are not in most of America, if you are in another country, or if you are in, um, 
Arizona or Hawaii or one of the few other places in America that does not uh, change for daylight savings time, then to you the class is going to be at a different time starting next week. So please do take that into account. We uh, we 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 in the rest of America, in most of America, move our clocks forward uh, this coming weekend. So uh, please do uh, uh, please do make a note of that. All right. So I just want to make sure to to put everybody on. Uh, uh, on guard for that. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's get back into Gandalf and Saruman here. Um, the first thing I want to do is I want to go backwards a little bit. Um, we're not, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but of course I've been away, uh, uh, as you know. So exp- especially to explain this to people who are watching this asynchronously later, most of you. Uh, who are participating live will probably have the same experience that I do. I feel like it's been like, you know, two months since uh, last we spoke together. So I was looking at my slides, like where I stopped last. I was trying to remember where I stopped. And anyway, I was just like, man, I need to review stuff. So I want to just do a very brief review. I'm going backwards by three slides. And I just want to kind of read through those to remind us of what we had been seeing as we're setting up, especially here, what we're doing is setting up the Gandalf and Saruman confrontation, right? And then we'll be moving forward through that. So we're going to look at all the Gandalf uh, Saruman stuff uh, in, uh, you know, primarily there, both in the Flotsam and Jetsam chapter and in the Voice of Saruman chapter. And then we'll be moving forward from there uh, into the Palantir stuff. It's really neat. Isn't it cool to see the Palantir? It's so cool um, when you get, when we get those moments. To me, it's one of the biggest sort of payoff moments of, uh, of, the, of the history of the Lord of the Rings books. When you see something which is fami- you know, so familiar, right? Something which you know is you know, being able to see into the future as we are by you know, being so familiar with the published text, knowing a thing that's going to be really big, that's going to be a really central part of the story, and seeing it just kind of emerging and seeing Tolkien just kind of beginning to understand what's, uh, what's going on there. And sometimes we get those sort of jarring moments, Yana, as you're alluding to, like we got uh, at the beginning of this one, right? Um, Anyway, so we'll we'll do that, and then if uh, you'll know, I'm doing super well. If we get back, there are a few passages on the ends that we kind of skipped over, but I want to make sure we do the wizard stuff first, and we'll get to some end passages if uh, if I am truly and astonishingly successful. So that's the plan. So let's move forward. Okay. Uh, Gandalf's speech with Saruman. This is, of course, one of his outlines. He rides over flooded causeway. Saruman looks out of window above door, asks how he dares to come without permission. Gandalf says he thought that as far as Saruman was concerned, he was still a lodger in Orthanc. Guests that leave from the roof have not always a claim to come in by the door. Saruman refused to repent or submit. So here in this outline, we can see the basic concept, right? And the basic concept uh, is you know, of, of him coming... Uh, uh, and so the the central concept of this outline, right, is about Saruman's attitude, right? He's going to look out the window and ask how Gandalf dares to come without permission, right? So he's going to kind of take the, try to take the high road with Gandalf. That's the initial concept, uh, ending with Saruman refusing to repent or submit and getting a glimpse of the kind of banter that Tolkien has in mind for the conversation between Gandalf and Saruman, right? The business about the lodger and guests that leave from the roof, right? Now we'll see him develop this further. So we're going to come back to this concept. This is just the outline, um, with, you know, some of these kind of lines of dialogue, uh, floating in as we've seen before, um, 
later on we'll see this sort of fleshed out in uh, in more detail. So, uh, okay. Then we have the, you know, Tolkien thinking about in some of his notes and in some of the dialogue that we're getting there in Flotsam and Jetsam, especially between Aragorn and Gandalf, you know, with Aragorn and Gandalf, we're seeing uh, him thinking about the big picture for Saruman, right? What's going on with Saruman? So Theoden, Theoden thinks a Nazgul may carry him off, Saruman, that is. Let him, says Gandalf. If Saruman thinks of that last treachery, cannot, uh, cannot pity him for the terrible fate that awaits him. Mordor can have no love for him. Indeed, what he will do, uh, something say, uh, that this must be clear to Saruman himself. Would it not be more dramatic to make Saruman offer help? Gandalf says no. He knows that if Mordor wins, he is done for now. Even the evidence that he had made war on us won't help him. Sauron knows that he only did so for his own ends, but if we win, with his belated help, he hopes to re-establish himself and escape punishment. Gandalf demands his staff of office. He refuses. Then Gandalf orders him to be shut up as above. They rest the night in the ruins and ride back to to Eodorus, which it still is. Feast on evening of the return and coming of the messenger. That ominous dark visage man should end this chapter. Okay, again, so this is the, uh, uh, this is the the the, the notes now. I, uh, yeah, Stephen. It is interesting that Gandalf can't pity him, right? Uh, that's that is that is kind of interesting, right? He's clearly saying that you know. Saruman has brought it on himself, right? Saruman is in is in trouble, but he's brought this trouble on himself. Um, this question of is Saruman actually gonna offer to help, right? Um, and it's 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 an interesting rationale. Gandalf sort of in his outlines here, uh, uh, Tolkien is arguing that Gandalf will argue that the only way. That basically, that's Saruman's only good option here, right? One way or another, Sauron is done with him. Sauron knows that he had, is, is intended to betray him. Uh, even the fact, you know, Sauron is not even going to be able to go to him and say, hey, man, I'm part of the team, right? Here I was, like, I lost, it's true, but I was, I was, I was, I was a team player, you know, I did my part, and they beat me, and, you know, uh, what else could I do? That's, it's not going to work, right? Because Sauron is going to know the only reason he attacked was not out of loyalty to Sauron, but, in fact, uh, pursuing his own ends. So, therefore, it would seem that the only option opened again to Saruman would be to come over to the good guys. Um... But, um, to, uh, Tolkien doesn't seem to want him to do that, right? It's interesting that he toys with it because it would be more dramatic to make Saruman offer to help. I wonder, I'm trying to figure out what exactly Tolkien in his notes means by dramatic in this context. Dramatic in the sense of it would make for a a greater sort of higher story, right? I mean, Saruman simply digging in his heels and refusing kind of brings his story to an end, not quite to an end, of course, as we'll see, but um, but it it kind of shuts down that line of plot, right? Um, and it's not very dramatic, right, for Saruman to just be like, no, I'm not going to come out and him stay in his tower and then everybody go away, right? So certainly... 
have Saruman having Saruman come over to the good guys, especially with the fact that there's going to be all kind. There would, if he did that, be all kinds of uncertainty about the genuineness of his offer, and is he going to betray them again, and everything. So it certainly opens up more uh, kind of dramatic angles uh, for uh, uh, for further storylines in the future. But I'm not sure that that's what he meant by dramatic, Margaret. It may just be uh, that he's saying that it would make for a more dramatic scene here, right? Rather than Gandalf just saying, um, what are you going to do? And Saruman saying, hey, I want to help. Or, you know, know, whatever, I'm not going to help go away. And yeah, so I mean, it certainly would make this conversation more dramatic. So I'm not really sure exactly what he means by that. Um, James, you are right that the phrase staff of office is a really interesting one, right? Um, uh, Is the staff that Saruman is wielding the staff of the head of the council? Is there a special staff that goes along with being the white? You know, I don't remember. Wizarding was a profession, right? So, um, yeah, I don't really know. Um, yeah, John Moss is uh, wondering if it's sort of wishful thinking for redemption instead of having Saruman be the Judas. Yeah, I mean... That would be dramatic too, right, John? I mean, it would be, that's another sense in which it would be more dramatic, right? More dramatic if he actually does repent. Uh, if Saruman makes good, uh, that's more dramatic too. It's certainly a bigger story, a, a, a better story, right? In the end, he decides against it, clearly. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, James is thinking about, you know, if Saruman does help Gandalf, uh, James uh, Stevens is thinking about the kind of parallel between Gandalf's relationship with a repentant Saruman and Frodo's relationship with Gollum as guide, right? Both of them would have this sort of, you know, helper that they can't trust. And and yeah, I mean, it wouldn't stunt the same situation, clearly, but it's, it's, I mean, I agree that there are sort of interesting parallels there. Um, okay. All right. Keeping going. This is the slide I believe we ended on last time. So here we have Aragorn pitching in with his thoughts on this, these same questions about Saruman's plight. Gandalf ought not to have much difficulty in convincing him that a victory for Mordor would not be pleasant for him now. Indeed, and here Aragorn lowered his voice, I do not see what can save him except the ring itself. It is well that he has no idea where it is, and we should do best never to mention it aloud. I do not know what powers Saruman in his tower may have, nor what means of communication with the East there may be. From your tale it is plain that he thought one of you was possibly the ring-bearer, and Sauron must therefore have the same doubt. If so, it will hasten his attack westward. Isengard has fallen none too soon, but there are some hopeful points. All this doubt may help poor Frodo and Sam, but at any rate, Saruman is in a cleft stick of his own cutting. So Aragorn's focus here on the ring, making, and we, you know, this is what we talked about at the very end of class last time, um, that, uh, Aragorn here makes explicit stuff that is not made explicit in the final text, but I'm not sure is not applicable still, right? It's just that Tolkien doesn't have them actually say this stuff. Um, That uh, Saruman knows that the ring is born by a hobbit is clear, right? In every version of the text, that's clear. Um, So Saruman believes that he has cap that he had captured, right? That he briefly had the ring bearer. Um, And 
this sense in which I mean it's really interesting isn't it the kind of double game that they the good guys have to sort of play on the one hand they don't want to talk about the ring right they don't want to play that up they want to keep that as quiet as possible and yet there are a small number of people Sauron and Saruman for instance very importantly who do know that the ring is about and that it's born by a hobbit so they don't want to talk about it they want to hush it up but at the same time they would kind of it's useful to use Merry and Pippin as a decoy in this way, right? To to enable to allow both Saruman and Sauron to think that, yep, ring bearer is right is right here, right? One of these two dudes is the ring bearer and you just missed, right? Um that would be helpful uh to Frodo and Sam. But um but of course they'd have to be careful doing that and they don't want to talk about he's whispering here because they don't even want their allies to know about it right he you know he's not going to he's not going to tell them that now we saw Gandalf saying more to Theoden than he does in the text as well right him telling Theoden but but he says it to Theoden aside even even there he doesn't want it to be general knowledge um anyway okay so that's where we finished up so I wanted to review that stuff and now we can move forward but a couple comments here first Veronica says that uh, Saruman is Gandalf's superior in the Order, but when Gandalf comes back to life, he's promoted to Saruman's position as head of the Order. Uh, yeah, exactly. He clearly does have the authority um, to cast him from the Order and from the Council, right, as he's going to say. But that's one of the things that's really interesting to me, Veronica. In fact, if you understand what I mean by this, it's not like I actually forgot about it, but, you know, Veronica, before you mentioned... Gandalf's resurrection in your comment right there as we've been looking at Gandalf and and I was forgetting about it, you know. Um, you know, in the text you don't really lose, you know, when you're like reading through the book you don't really lose sight of the fact that, oh yeah, this Gandalf is the new Gandalf, right? This is Gandalf 2.0 we're talking about. Um, but um, the text, this original draft text, the thing that I'm missing is exactly that. Uh, uh, Veronica, what you're pointing to, that element, that new element of authority, right? Um, we don't have Gandalf sort of uncloaking himself and pulling rank on Saruman. Um, he makes some other moves, but he doesn't make that move. Um, Gandalf doesn't sound. Remember like, the moment in the in the published text where he says, "Behold, I am not Gandalf the Grey whom you betrayed. I am Gandalf the White who returns from death." Right. Not only does he not say that in the original draft, he doesn't act like that. Right. Um, uh, yeah, Kate. Exactly. He he. This Gandalf is much more like Gandalf the Grey, uh, especially in his relationship with uh, uh, with with Saruman. Um, so I find that I find that very. So Veronica, thanks for bringing that up. I, I was I, I I had not even consciously kind of put that together, but you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and Lee, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Lee's thinking about the keeping the ring secret, and she's reminded of uh, Sam's careful references to the ring in the Orc Tower. Um, when 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 Sam says to Frodo after finding him, you know that he 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 has kept it safe, right? He he won't even name it or mention what it is that he's talking about, um, even though they both believe they're the only living people left in the tower, right? But but yes, that that. Uh, um, not wanting to name the ring aloud uh, is... Uh, I, I agree, that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
good. Let's see. Um, yeah, Stephen, I'm not sure if they're thinking, like if Aragorn here is thinking that Saruman is more likely to help if he thinks that one of the two uh, hobbits has the ring. I mean, it, if anything, that would make the whole that whole situation sketchier, right? I mean, if... If Saruman is up there looking down at the two hobbits and being like, one of those two guys is holding the Ring of Power right now. Oh, hey, I am here to help, right? Come in, uh, bring the hobbits, right? I've got a special room set up for them. Ask, you know, hospitality and stuff, right? I mean, obviously, dangling them as bait in front of Saruman and then working with Saruman, uh, I mean, really um, puts... uh, puts Pippin <laughs> in pretty shaky ground. It would be really hard, I think. Um, uh, yeah, Arthur, it would seem much more likely that he's just playing for time and planning on grabbing the ring. Exactly. Uh, so it's... I would think that, that if they really did try to play up that move, it would make it almost impossible to trust him, right? So would it make him more likely to want to work with him? Yeah, but uh, what would be gained? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay, Stephen is asking, are they not just wanting Saruman to report to Sauron that the ring isn't there, or what else do the good guys gain by having Saruman think that? Think that the ring isn't there? Um, or wait. Hang on. Stephen, I'm not following here. Um, are they not? Are they just not wanting Saruman to report to Sauron that the ring isn't there? Yes, they would want him not to do that, right? They would want Sauron not to have a confirmation that the ring is not there, right? Or to have Sar- uh, Saruman confirming that he's not there. Um, uh, so what else do the good guys gain by having Saruman think that Merry or Pippin has it? Um... I, I, the number one thing, Stephen, is if they can convince the bad guys that Merry and Pippin have the ring, then they serve as long-distance decoys, the distance being the key thing, right? Um, uh, you know, pay no attention to the hobbits that are approaching Mordor, right, because the ring is totally way over here at Isengard, right? That's absolutely where the ring is. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yana, you're right about that. Yana says he has this delightful image of Saruman leering at Merry and Pippin smoking smoke rings, uh, you know, bl- blowing smoke rings on the ruins uh, of the Ring of Isengard. It's so true, right? If Saruman, Saruman can see them from a distance, right? That idea, Saruman is standing there. The frustration of Saruman sitting there in his tower, looking out the window, seeing the hobbits from afar, right? I think like the ring of power is right there, and I can because of the stupid ends. I can't get it's like I in view, right? So near and yet so far. Oh man, yeah, that is, uh, and and smoking his own tobacco, right? Uh, to boot, Yana. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, that is uh, incredibly taunting. That whole uh, that whole concept. All right, so let us move forward. Gandalf says that he was probably in a great taking thinking that the ring might have gone to Eodorus, and meant to blot out Theoden and all his folk before they had time to do anything about it. But there were one or two bits of essential information he lacked, the return of Gandalf and the rising of the Ents. He thought the one was finished for good, and the others no good, 
old, slow-witted back numbers. Two very bad mistakes. Anyway, that is what he did. I saw them go, endless lines of orcs, and squadrons slash troops of them mounted on great wolves. A Saruman notion? And whole regiments of men, too. Okay, uh, so there are... Uh, uh, he, this, so this is, of course, in the dialogue of, of uh, Merry and Pippin, as you can see, uh, that there are, um, uh, that there are, oh, no, Mike, uh, the orcs did not search Merry. Remember, they were, the orcs were forbidden to search Merry and Pippin. They have not been, they have not been frisked. Um, they were told to bring them undisturbed as they are to the tower. In fact, when Grishnok, he does start pawing at them, right? He does start frisking them, essentially, in the dark, right before he takes them off. Uh, And he's breaking the rules by doing that. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, so, so, here again, we have another speculation, which I think might still be relevant in the published text, but which is not explicitly stated in the published text. Um, interesting, don't you see? Again, kind of stepping back from that for a second and looking at the big picture there. This is a trend, right? It's not a universal trend, uh, but it definitely happens uh, with with uh, with some frequency here in these passages that Tolkien, as he revises, tends to say less and less, right? There are many things that are taken out, not because they're necessarily being changed or removed, but because he doesn't want to be that explicit about it. And that makes sense, given how much we see him working this stuff out as he goes, right? You know, he has the characters say all the, do all this exposition and rationalize, you know, think everything through and explain everything, because he's thinking it through for the first time, right? That he's, he's, um, uh, he's he's uh, uh, figuring this stuff out for the first time. Um, and then after he has figured it out, he goes back and is like, okay, I don't necessarily want to make the characters explain everything like that, right? So I'm going to take out some of those things. Um, and that's... Um, uh, so that that's a really interesting trend that we that we see, and we've been seeing it a lot here in this whole book three section uh, of his drafting. Um, but uh, but of course, that one of the main things here that we that we uh, one of the main examples of that that we see here in this passage is the fact that the reason that he the reason that Saruman. Uh, moves against Theoden the way he does. The reason the Battle of Helm's Deep happens in the first place is that he thinks the ring might have gone to Edoras, right? He thinks that Theoden might have the Ring of Power, and he wants to strike down Theoden before they had time to do anything about it, meaning had time to... um, uh, to do anything about to do anything with the ring, right? To learn how to use the ring, to take the ring, find out what it is, learn to use it against Saruman. Uh, he thinks Theoden's got the ring, and he's going to go take it from him before he sorts it out. Um, and that's really interesting that he Saruman had no idea about the return of Gandalf, and that of course he didn't know anything about the rising of the Ents. Um, so, so that yeah, I you know. Mary, I forget whether it's Mary or Pippin speaking here, um, but uh, they articulate two mistakes, two bad mistakes that he made, right? Overlooking, not knowing about Gandalf and overlooking the Ents. Of course, there's a third mistake that he's made here, which is thinking that Theoden has the ring, which he does not have, right? Uh, that's sort of the unspoken mistake on top of all of it. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, sorry. I just want to pause for a second to explain. There's some questions on the on the on the Twitch chat. I see you guys there. Yeah. So uh, for the MythGuard Academy classes, I am using a GoToWebinar session, which you can totally access. Um, if you go to uh, MythGuard.org and look at the War of the Ring page under the MythGuard Academy tab. So go to the Academy tab in the War of the Ring page, and you'll get the uh, the link to the GoToWebinar session. It was also I also just retweeted it retweeted it on Twitter uh, uh, like an hour ago. Um, click on the link there and you can come into the webinar. And then, yeah, I, I, I can see comments from people there. Those are the majority of the comments that I'm answering here. Um, but I can also see your comments on the Twitch chat. So if you want to post questions there, I can I can take those into account as well. So, yeah, it's complicated because I'm broadcasting in like two or three different places, as is kind of common nowadays. But just to just to explain how it's working for for you guys, um, okay. Uh, so Stephen, you were right. At least Saruman does not get involved in a land war in Asia. Uh, uh, but other than that, he's made most uh, of the uh, of the most serious mistakes that he possibly could. Um, Kimber's asking, "What is a great taking?" Uh, that just means he's uh, was really upset, right? He was all in a. Uh, he was uh, he was all bo- he was all bothered, right? Is uh, how I would translate that. Um, uh, so so yes, there was Saruman all um, all all hot and bothered, thinking that the ring might have gone to Adarus. Um Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, Exactly, Tony. Saruman strikes too quickly in the same way that Sauron will. Indeed, Tony, it's hard for me to think that what we're seeing, and especially the ration, uh, that you could say in a sense that Tolkien is not going to just cut this kind of exposition, right? This kind of explanation. He's just going to remove it to the final debate of the captains after the Battle of Pelennor Field, right? Applying it to Sauron instead of to Saruman. Um... Because it is very parallel. Now, again, the parallel remains in the published text. I mean, I, th- I, I think that this this line of thinking is likely true. Um, and there's even, like, some much vaguer hints that it is, in fact, true. Um, it's just they're not going to spell it out in this same, in this same, um, uh, in this same way. Yeah, he just doesn't want to explain the same thing twice, Tony. Exactly. Exactly. Um... Yeah, good. Um, and so, yes, John Caldwell, you're right that um, this does presume that Saruman thinks that Merry and Pippin went to Eodorus. Yes. Exa- well, because remember, remember, John, he knows two things, right? A, he knows his orcs captured Merry and Pippin and hauled them most of the way to Isengard. But he knows, B, they didn't make it. And he knows what happens to his orcs, right? He knows that his orcs were defeated uh, by Eomir and the Rohirrim, right? Um, he doesn't know that the ends are in the equation at all. Um, and again, remember, this is also still suggested in the, the, you know, the sort of the further steps aren't articulated. But remember, even in the published text in the White Rider chapter, Gandalf confirms that he thinks that Saruman has come out to see that it was Saruman snooping around to find out what happened to the orcs uh, and to see if he could get find Merry and Pippin himself. But unlike Aragorn, he, Saruman, does not, he has no woodcraft. Remember that line? 
Um, meaning he couldn't read the signs. Aragorn was able to read the signs, find Merry and Pippin's footsteps, and piece together what happened and how they escaped from the battle and where they ended up, and that's how they go to the to Treebeard's shelf and um, meet up with Gandalf there. Saruman can't figure that out. All he sees, he knows the Ents had the hobbits, he knows that the Rohirrim destroyed the Ents, and so, logically, he thinks that either the hobbits themselves or... Uh, or the ring alone, if the ring was taken off their cold and bloody corpses, uh, was, is, anyway, it's gone to Edoras, right? So it's a very logical conclusion uh, for Saruman to come to, knowing what he knows, which is only, uh, only those two things. Um, yeah, good. And James, you were absolutely right that the, this parallel between uh, uh, James Oakley, I should say, there two Jameses, as usual, uh, sometimes three, uh, participating in our discussions here. Uh, uh, but anyhow, um, yeah, so uh, as James Oakley says, uh, Saruman follows Sauron down the same ruinous path, and we can even see that emphasized, of course, with the west winds that blow them both away, absolutely. Um, so seeing the parallels in their thought processes and and uh, and what leads to their downfall, it all it's a very Tolkienian model to have that kind of parallelism. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Tony, I agree. He did see the three hunters as well, right? And he knows that they went to Edoras too. So yeah, I mean, everybody involved went to Edoras, right? Where else are they going to go? Because uh, of course he doesn't know about the ants. So absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's all I want to talk about there. Okay. I love this part. I don't know what Saruman thought was happening. This is, of course, still in the in the Hobbit's account of the attack on Isengard. I don't know what Saruman thought was happening, but all that I have seen since leads me to think that either he was never really a first-class wizard, not up to his reputation, which was partly due to Isengard, and that was not his making to begin with, or he had been deteriorating, relying on wheels and whatnot, and not on wisdom. And he does not seem to have much heart in any case. Certainly, he had not been going back in plain courage. The old fool had really become dependent on all his organized slaves. He had a daunting way with him. Power of dominating minds and bewildering or persuading them was his chief asset all along, I fancy. But without his armies to do as he commanded, he was just a cunning old man, very slippery, but with no grit. And the old fool had sent his armies off. Uh, again, you will recognize this passage from the published text, but again, see how much more is being said here than is ultimately going to be said in the published text. Um, yeah, Lee, that the business about relying too much on wheels is really interesting, right? You know, the the idea that Saruman has a mind of metal and wheels uh, is an accusation that Treebeard makes from the beginning. I, I'm pretty sure that that line is in the is in the the draft text of the Treebeard chapter, um, that he has a mind of metal and wheels. Um, but this, this idea, Lee, as you point out, of him relying too much on the wheels, right? Uh, and this was the thing that I love most. My subtitle for this uh, slide is there is wisdom in wisdom, you know. Um, and, uh, of course, I'm, I was, the, the phrasing I'm, I'm thinking of and recalling Treebeard's comments, right? There are ents and ents, you know. Um, but it's particularly it's particularly important here because wisdom um, I think this is a, 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 a theory but I feel pretty good about it 
um, when he, Mary, I think it's Mary, says he had been deteriorating, relying on wheels and whatnot, and not on wisdom. Right? I think that Tolkien is, this is a joke. This is a pun. Right? Um, but it's an Anglo-Saxon pun. Um, Saruman, Searuman, uh, is an Anglo-Saxon word. His name means wise man, but wise in the sense of like cunning, right? Uh, clever, the cunning mind, the cunning and clever person. Um, in particular, like a Searuman is like a craftsman, like somebody who's who's cunning, who who makes cunning things, right? Um, and wisdom. Uh, there is an old archaic usage of, of wisdom that goes back to Anglo-Saxon, which defines wisdom in exactly that way, as like the ability to... Uh, I think I can illustrate this. You can still hear it in the King James translation of the Bible, actually. Um, the passage I'm thinking about, if you read in the King James translation of the book of Exodus... Um, after the commandments and stuff are given, and it's time uh, to make the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's time to build the tabernacle and, and, to, and to make the Ark of the Covenant. And God has given all these instructions, right? You know, mapped out exactly what the, ta- the, the, the tabernacle uh, and the Ark of the Covenant are like, are supposed to be like, right? He's, so we've, we've, he's, got, a, he's got a full uh, um, list of, ins- you know, Moses has a full list of instructions. And then God tells him to find wise men, right? To find uh, men with a wise spirit who are able to do this, right? So he's got to find craftsmen actually to construct the tabernacle uh, and uh, and uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And again, it's it's even in the King James translation, it's the word wise is used, like find wise people uh, in order to do this. So, so anyway, like the wheels and stuff, like that is wisdom in one sense, of the word, right? That is like to to uh, to rely on wheels, to build cunning devices, uh, cunning constructions in order. Like that is what it means to be a searuman, right? Um, that is wisdom. Uh, but of course, just because it's wisdom in that sense doesn't mean obviously that it's wisdom in the other sense, right? In the in the larger and deeper sense, uh, wisdom as opposed to foolishness. So, you know, a thing can be wise and still be desperate folly, as Five of the Rabbit says. But uh, that in a totally different context. But the point. But but uh, sorry, I'm like crossing my Mythgard Academy streams here. Uh, but um. um but yes, the the um, the 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 wisdom in the cunning device sense, in the crafty sense, um, is not necessarily wisdom. It can be foolishness, right? And that's, I think the I think it's a joke. I think it's a pun. Uh, so how about that for a, a pretty nerdy and obscure pun that Tolkien is making here, Arthur? Right? Um, uh, that. Um, that he is, um, Mary is saying, relying on wheels and whatnot, and not on wisdom, right? He's got that wisdom over there, but, you know, the real wisdom, the wisdom that really matters, the wisdom that, uh, that helps you know how to make the right call and do the right thing, yeah, uh, he really, he really struck out on that, um, yeah, yeah, 
Um, yeah, Tony, it is. It is. It's like when Gandalf calls Sauron a wise fool um, later. On. It's a little bit different uh, because he's not talking about two different kinds of wisdom there exactly. But uh, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Karina, I'm glad you're enjoying my <laughs> my explanation of this passage, which was involving both the King James and Watership Down, uh, and I'm not sure necessarily helped. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. John, that is interesting. You're right. John Caldwell is thinking about uh, you know the parallels between Saruman and Sauron. Uh, and, uh, you know, John is seeing a, a greater parallel between Saruman and Melkor, um, especially the cunning creative power that without slaves lacks courage. Um, yeah, John, you know what that sounds to me like? That sounds like a really good pa- myth moot paper topic, actually. Uh, doing a comparison of, uh, of Saruman and Melkor would be really interesting, right? Because so, I agree with you, Saruman and Sauron are kind of the obvious parallels, right? Um, uh, but thinking about it in connection with Melkor would be would be really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, uh, um, Lee, I do think that we do have a second pun uh, of, of an even more direct kind because it doesn't have to go all the way back through Anglo-Saxon. Um, uh, it can only just go back to Middle English and you'll get it. Uh, which is totally recent, right, as from Tolkien's perspective. He does not seem to have much heart in any sense. Certainly he had been going back in plain courage. Uh, the pun that Lee is pointing to is between heart and courage, right? Um, if you, so you think about uh, uh, cur, uh, the French word is what Lee is thinking of, but of course courage in, uh, in, in, in uh, Middle English works too. Uh, just your your courage, your spirit, right? Um, uh, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that uh, heart in the sense in which it's often used. Uh, the courage is is like heart would be a pretty good modern English translation of the Middle English word courage, which was a a, a favorite word of Chaucer's. Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah. Those, I, I agree that he's kind of uh, well. Here he's not playing on it so much as sort of expanding it, or uh, it's more of a synonym than a than a play exactly. But yeah, I, that 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 clearly works. Um, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> Stephen Cover says so. The Tin Man and the Lion were after the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely were. Uh, in fact, Stephen, I've actually often thought that when watching The Wizard of Oz, and I'm like, one of them is wanting a heart, and one of them is wanting courage. Yeah, like uh, you don't even need Middle English to be thinking that. Like they're kind of they're kind of like the distinction there. Like the distinction between the brain and the heart or the courage makes sense, right? Um, but yeah, I've never quite fully understood what really distinguishes, uh, you know, what uh, the Tin Man wants and what the Lion wants. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> well, um, uh, we'll we'll come back. Um, okay, all right. Uh, no grit. Okay, 
and the old fool had sent all his armies off. A couple of you before were pointing out how cheeky the hobbits are, right? Uh, for them to be sitting there smoking Saruman's pipeweed in the ruins of Isengard, calling him an old fool, right? Um, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. We should have been far more anxious. We should have been far more worried and anxious about you, I expect. Only it was difficult, what with Treebeard and Gandalf, to really believe you would come to grief. Again, this is the hobbits finishing their, you know, and, and they're like, you know, the armies went off to fight you, uh, right? And here they're focusing on how, like, oh, Saruman was like nothing without his armies. He sent his armies away as if he just put them, you know, tossed them aside, right? As if, he, as if they were going to waste his armies. Uh, and so at the end of the speech is this little sort of acknowledgement of, like, oh, yeah, uh, they were kind of... He, he sent his armies off to sort of put you guys into more mortal peril, didn't he? Um, but with the explanation, we should have been more worried and anxious, I expect, only it was difficult, what with Treebeard and Gandalf, to really believe you would come to grief. This charming view, right? Charming hobbit view that with Treebeard and Gandalf around, they're not going to let anybody actually you know, die or anything, right? People, surely all of our friends are safe because Gandalf is there, right? There's this, like, young child to parent trustingness, right? Um, yeah, that, um, uh, that, uh, that we see the Hobbit showing towards Gandalf there. If Gandalf's there, everything will be fine, right? Nothing bad could possibly happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's really, that's really cute. Oh, oh, thank you. Sorry, uh, uh, Harnuth in the Twitch chat, uh, just found that I, I was going to try to quote it, Harnuth, but I was quoting it from memory and I didn't want to screw it up. But yes, uh, the King James, uh, quote from chapter 35 of Exodus and every wise hearted among you shall come and make all that the Lord hath commanded. That's Moses speaking to the Israelites. Yes. Wise-hearted. Those who are wise-hearted are those who have the, you know, the carpentry skill, basically, and the and the metal craft, uh, to you know make the pins and uh, and uh, make the cherubs on top of the the thing and uh, 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 cut the you know the badger skins and everything else right that you need to make the tabernacle and the uh, so it's it's the ability to craft things but being wise-hearted that's exactly it. Hey, look, hey, look, Laura, that brings our two puns together, right? Wise and hard. How about that? Um, uh, so, yeah, thank you for that, Harnuth. Um, okay. So, right. So here's uh, trusting, trusting Gandalf. Um, uh, then. Yet we nearly did, said Aragorn. Gandalf's plans are risky. And, the, uh, and they lead often to a knife edge. There is great wisdom, forethought, and courage in them, but no certainty. You have to do your part as it comes to you, or they would not work. Um, really, again, this is another one of those things, I think, which doesn't change... I, I, I don't think that anything in here is removed conceptually from the published version. They just don't say it out loud, right? Um... I can't imagine you guys would really have come to grief with Gandalf there. And Aragorn says, yeah, almost happened, though. Right? And it's not just that, like, okay, you know, kids, Gandalf can't prevent bad things from, all bad things from happening. Right? Even with Gandalf there, one or all of us might have died. Even had the battle still been won. 
right? But it's not just that. He says much more than that. Gandalf's plans are risky, and they lead often to a knife edge. That is to say, if we follow Gandalf, far from being sure that we can never come into come to grief if we follow Gandalf, if you follow Gandalf, you are likelier to come close to grief, right? Um, you're going to be put at risk. Um, and if you follow him, you're going to be led to the knife edge. His plans, he has wisdom, forethought, and courage, but no certainty. If you follow him, you are likelier to die than not, right? Um, and that's a really fascinating thing for him to say. You have to do your part as it comes to you, or they would not work. They, his plans, right? Uh, Gandalf's plans would not work if you don't do your part. So so notice he adds another thing there at the end, right? So again, not only is it no guarantee, it's the opposite of a guarantee, right? If you follow Gandalf, you're going to be doing riskier, more dangerous things. You're going to be more likely to come to grief in a sense, right? Um, and what's more, the success of Gandalf's plans relies on you. So far from being able to just sort of sit back and say... Um, uh, far from just having to, from being able to sit back and say, it's okay, I'm safe because I'm with Gandalf, right? Not only are you not, can you not just kind of assume you're going to get swept along uh, in Gandalf's wake, and, and uh, but rather, Gandalf's plans are going to rely on you, right? And if you don't do your part. Um, so not only are you not safe, not only is Gandalf actually going to put you at risk rather than protecting you, but you might cause Gandalf's plans to fail, right? If you don't do your part. So it's a big, um, uh, you know, the, 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 he's really sort of shakes up the, 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 the certainty here, um, uh, a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. James, it's a wonderful illustration, right? James Lieback, uh, all three Jameses are here tonight. Um, James Lieback says, um, we gathered there was a great battle going on, or soon, or soon would be, and that you were in it and might never come out of it, right? Um, yeah, that's what they say in the published text. So we can see them expressing some, you know, the the idea that they're not worried or anxious because they're with Gandalf. We don't see them articulating that, right? So he seems to have pulled back a little from this statement of confidence by the hobbits. Um, and yet, James, that's all we get, right? We don't get any of this explanation following this up. Um, yeah, yeah. Bruce, uh, Heitbrink asks, asks a great question. Uh, what previous experience does Aragorn have with Gandalf's plans leading to the knife edge, right? Um, something like the hunt for Smeagol would be, uh, one possible, uh, 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 option, Bruce. There's also lots of implications there are a couple times when Aragorn suggests that, you know, thinking, for instance, of the times when um, they're in doubt, right, in Moria, and Aragorn is reassuring them in his Cats of Queen Beruthiel speech, for instance, right, um, that he has been with him on many a journey, and, and you know, and, and he sort of talks about how we've been in lots of tight places and Gandalf has always gotten us out, Um there are all these untold stories, right, of things that the two of them have done together that, you know, we don't never even really know about. Um, so, um, 
anyway, yeah, yeah. I, we don't really. It, it is. It, it is a really interesting question to think about, Bruce. But we don't really know too much. Uh, too much about it, Bruce. I kind of wonder. It's not mentioned, right? But I have to think the Thorongil stuff was kind of Gandalf's idea, right? Gandalf has to have been involved on some level uh, with the whole Thorongil thing. Um, yeah, Tony was just saying the same thing. Exactly. Gandalf has to have been involved in in, uh, uh, in the Thorongil days. If you, uh, For those of you who don't remember what I'm talking about, of course, I'm thinking, you know, in Appendix A of uh, the time when Aragorn, in disguise and under a different name, uh, uh, fights in the wars with Gondor and helps to uh, retake Pelargir. So, um... Uh, so yeah, that that Gandalf has to have been involved somehow there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bruce is Thorngill a thing yet? Oh no, I don't see any reason to think that. Right? Um, uh, no. Um, but but again, that's it's that's uh, not really my point. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that there's been many any other adventures at all. I don't think there have to be, right? Um, when he says, when Aragorn says Gandalf's plans are risky and, and they lead off into a knife edge, I don't think that that means that there have to have already been written out uh, examples of this, right? Any more than when uh, Aragorn makes his Cats of Queen Beruthio comment, Tolkien already had fully articulated... Uh, instances from earlier on, right? It's just part of the story that they have had these experiences. So, yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah. Tony, I, 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 I gotta say, I think the odds of uh, the the odds of doing of 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 having the Thorngill story be involved in that Amazon adaptation, I gotta put the odds at like eighty percent at least, right? But anyway, yes. Um, good. And Kate points out, Kate Neville points out that we know even from The Hobbit that Gandalf sends hobbits off on adventures and they sometimes don't return, right? Absolutely. Um, the conservative elements, which is like 90% of them, right, in The Hobbit, the conservative, uh, the dominant conservative majority of the Shire uh, who thinks that adventures are bad and scary uh, and think that Gandalf is uh, a a disturber of the peace, as he will say in Chapter 1 of The Fellowship of the Ring, um, that element of Hobbit society is... uh, uh, is right. I mean, they, they have a point, right? Gandalf does. Uh, uh, he is a disturber of the peace in almost every way, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very good. Um, yes, and John, you're absolutely right that Aragorn would have uh, heard tales of Gandalf's um, uh, other things that he's done in the past uh, from uh, just growing up in Rivendell. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Ah, Josiah is thinking about, uh, is comparing Gandalf's role in bringing others into adventures in Middle-earth with the Doctor in Doctor Who. Yeah, love that parallel. You know what that sounds like, Josiah? A really great myth mood paper, actually. So, just saying, just saying. Uh, compare and contrast. Gandalf, 
Gandalf's relationship with the Tooks and the Faramirs and Aragorns of the world, right? With uh, the Doctor's relationship with his companions. Uh, good paper. Good paper topic. Okay. Um, yeah, Tony, you're right. You never know if uh, you're a hobbit uh, under the influence of Gandalf if you may end up in a pair of wooden shoes. It could happen, right? Uh, you're completely right about that. Okay. Uh, now we get into the dis- the full text description. So we're, we're out of outline world, right? And of course, the, we were just the last few also. Uh, we were in the full version of the Hobbit's commentaries and discussions there in, uh, um, what do you call it? Flotsam and Jetsam. Uh, now, uh, indeed, said Gandalf. Well, I am going to pay him a farewell visit. Uh, perhaps you would like to come. I should, said Gimli. I should like to see him and learn if he really looks like you. You may not see him close enough for that, laughed Gandalf. He has long been a shy bird, and late events may not have... And he crosses that out and changes it to... He may be shy of showing himself, but I have had all the ants removed from sight, so perhaps we shall persuade him. They came They came now to the foot of Orthanc. Okay, so... Um... Uh... Oh, Mike, the difference between flotsam and jetsam? This is actually, uh, it's actually interesting to think of this in the context of, uh, of the chapter, right? Uh, flotsam is stuff that is, uh, so jetsam is stuff that is jettisoned out of ships, like, so stuff that has been thrown out of ships. Flotsam is just floating bits of wreckage and stuff like that. Uh, so there actually is a difference between flotsam and jetsam, and it's actually relevant in this chapter, right, as uh, the pipeweed is flotsam, right, because it's just, it's just stuff that is uh, randomly floating on the thing, whereas, of course, the Palantir is going to be jetsam, right? That's going to be thrown out the window uh, at them. So that's that's it's it's actually kind of fun, right? Um, anyway, okay. Uh, but sorry, what was I saying? Oh yeah, okay. About this passage, the one obvious big thing, right, is that the the comparatively small stature of Saruman. Um, remember, uh, and of course I know I'm relying on a lot of recall by you guys of the published text. Right, and I say, and I suppose I should have said this a long time ago, um, and doubtless uh, most of you have already uh, uh, availed yourself of, of of this approach without my having to tell you. Um, really good idea to review the published text of the chapters that we're going to be talking about before we uh, uh, before we talk about them, because um, a lot of stuff will really kind of float to the surface if you do that. And we're you know flotsam. There we are again. Um, but anyhow, you may recall from the published text that when Gimli expresses his desire to see Saruman and the reason for it, which is that he wants to see if Saruman does in fact look a lot like Gandalf, Gandalf says to him, and how would you, you know, I, I wish to learn if he really looks like you. Gandalf says, and how would you do that, right? He could look like me in your eyes if he chose to. Um, this, you know, so immediately Gandalf takes the occasion to say, don't take this lightly. Don't make assumptions. He can deceive you. He can make you see and hear what you want, what he wants you to see and hear. Um, and he says that he may be shy of showing himself to so many at once, right? Um, no hint of that, right? Um, notice that Gimli 
in saying, I should like to see him and learn if he really looks like you, which is kind of fairly lighthearted, right? A lightheartedness which Gandalf cautions him for and, and semi-rebukes him for in his response in the published text. But not only does Gandalf not rebuke him for that lightheartedness, Gandalf himself is the one who begins and perpetuates the lightheartedness all the way through, right? Um, I am going to pay him a farewell visit. Perhaps you would like to come. I mean, it sounds like like he's inviting him to go and over to somebody's house for tea, right? Uh, like it was a Wednesday afternoon or something. Um, and uh, Gandalf laughs in response to Gimli's comment, and we even have Tolkien having the impulse to have Gandalf make a joke about it. He has long been a shy bird, right? Uh, and, you know, so he, he's going to, and late events may not have, and I get the impression he's going to play on the bird thing, or he's going to continue the bird joke uh, there. Uh, and he does decide, Tolkien does decide to pull Gandalf back uh, from the from 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 the flippancy, right? From making jokes. But he's still not speaking very gravely. He may be shy of showing himself, right? Perhaps we shall persuade him to come talk to us. Uh, so, I mean, there is some ridicule of Saruman and his distress here, Brian, so I agree that maybe uh, he thinks that the, the lightheartedness of Gandalf's comment there is inappropriate in more than one way, possibly. Um, but, yeah, this is... Um, the whole thing it just sounds very informal, right? Nobody, even t- Tolkien, seems to take Saruman really seriously here, right? <laughs> James Oakley says, Tolkien got the better of his mirth, <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Um, so look how Saruman talks, and more importantly, how Saruman's talk is described uh, in the first version of this scene. The window closed. They waited. Suddenly another voice spoke, low, melodious, and yet it seemed unpleasant, changed to unpleasing. Its tone was scornful. This was changed, probably at once, to low, melodious, and persuasive, yet now its tone was one of, was of one who, in spite of a gentle nature, is aggrieved. Really interesting evolution here, right? Um, first, impulse, that his voice is low and melodious. Low and melodious is consistent all the way through, right? So his voice is melodious and yet seemed unpleasant. I take the shift from unpleasant to unpleasing. My suspicion there is that that's merely just trying to explain what he meant, right? This is not a change of concept, but like, melodious but unpleasant seems like a contradiction, right? How can it be both unpleasant and melodious, right? Unless it's a melody that's really annoying or something like that. But, um, but anyway, uh, so he seems to be clarifying by unpleasant, I mean unpleasing, right? Um, it's melodious, but my response to the, you know, the listener's response to it is a negative one. Why would they have a negative response to his low and melodious voice? Because it's scornful, because it's tone, right? Um, but the shift from that to the, to the revised version is a major shift, right? Shift from, he has a pleasant but scornful voice, right? His voice sounds attractive, but I don't like him, to his tone is persuasive, and to show how, to, 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 to reveal how he is persuading, how he is working on them, right? Of one who, in spite of a gentle nature, is aggrieved, right? We can see that the very tone of Saruman's voice is already now painting these kind of pictures in the 
minds of the hearers, right? And that's very different from, let me explain the way in which it was unpleasant. They didn't like it because he sounded like a snob and a jerk, right? Which was that first uh, that first response. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so Tony, we do see him zeroing in on Saruman's voice as his power, but it's clear that first description says suggests nothing about any power. It gets pleasant, right? It's it's melodious, but there's no sense of power in his voice, and we get that concept coming in here pretty quickly. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, said Saruman, you have a voice of brass, Gandalf. You disturb my repose. You have come to my private door without leave. What is your excuse? Uh, can I just say, that is such a gutsy move. And we've seen from his earliest outlines uh, of the meeting between Saruman and Gandalf, and you'll remember that they've been going on for a long time, right? It was an early outline um, in which Tolkien was already picturing what the confrontation of Gandalf and Saruman would look like, right? And it's not surprising that it should be, right? As the fact that Saruman was holding Gandalf captive... Um, entered into, it didn't enter in the very earliest versions of the draft, but it's been in the story now for some time, and so since that's been kind of out there, right, there's all obviously unresolved uh, issues between Gandalf and Saruman, so that Tolkien has been looking ahead to the resolution of that particular subplot is far from shocking, right? Um, and from the first of those outlines, we saw that he was contemplating having Saruman uh, try to boldface it out, right? Uh... Uh, even when Tolkien was envisioning originally no confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman until after the downfall of Sauron himself. Which made sense, because of course you'll remember from the Treason of Isengard that he was picturing the armies of Saruman and the armies of Sauron attacking together at Minas Tirith. So it's not until that battle that Sauron, that Saruman is defeated, right? So Saruman and Sauron will be defeated more or less at the same time in the original version of the story. So of course the confrontation wouldn't have come at this point. Uh, but anyway, okay. Um, so, but, but again, Again, there's there's bold face and there's bold face, right? I mean, for in his position, right? Not only the defeated person, but the the guy who's obviously been in the wrong, right? He was caught out by Gandalf. He had to reveal his hand to Gandalf and hold him prisoner before, and now like he's been the 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 organizer and general of these armies that has been trying to sack this whole country, and. You have come to my private door without leave. What is your excuse? Oh man, like the way that he's trying to control the narrative here from the very beginning. Um, really, really remarkable. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I agree, Josiah. What's your excuse? Sounds almost parental, right? He's not only claiming authority. Um, it's a uh, He's not only treating Gandalf as if he's the, the, the principal or the headmaster and Gandalf is the erring pupil, right? But as if he's an erring pupil who has... It's not just that he's come to, this, to the headmaster's uh, uh, office, right? He's barged into the headmaster's office, right? Uh, you know, it's... Uh, the, talk about, like, uh, you know, sort of marginalizing Gandalf's position here, right? Without leave, said Gandalf, 
I had the leave of such gatekeepers as I found. Oh, burn! <laughs> I love that, right? Hey, Marion Pippin gave me permission to come in. Uh, but, I mean, I had the, of such gatekeepers as I found, right? Uh, there were... Not, uh, the, the, uh, the delightful sort of multi-levels of burn in that statement, I think, are really fun. But am I not a lodger in this inn? My host at least has never shown me the door since he first admitted me. Ooh, ah, so, uh, again, sort of teasing and making, you know, comparing his imprisonment to being a lodger in the inn. Uh, and again, think of the multiple layers of burn there too, right? A, uh, you tried to hold me prisoner, right? But you didn't succeed anymore. You know, uh, you were more innkeeper than prisoner, right? kept keeping me for a day and then I left at my pleasure, right? You know, it's, uh, oh man. Um, so not only were you a traitor and a, and a, and a, and, a, and, you know, trying to be, uh, my, uh, jail warden, you failed at it horribly. Right. Um, but, um, but also by characterizing him as an innkeeper, right. As the host, uh, uh, of the, uh, of the inn, um, that he's also uh, showing bad hospitality, right? Um, my host has at least never shown me the door since he first admitted me. Guests that leave by the roof have no claim to re-enter by the door at their will, said Saruman. And here we see him playing with that line that we saw in that first, the first outline of this on the very first slide I was reviewing tonight. Um, that... Uh, the imp his implication would appear to be like I'm going to try to take, you know, to to get back at Gandalf by uh, implying that by leaving by the rather than escaping from unjust imprisonment uh, by fleeing from the roof uh, by leaving my hospitality uh, by sneaking out through the roof uh, he's made himself more like a burglar than like a guest and so he's the one in the wrong not me. Um, uh, and so, therefore, you 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 don't get an invitation back, right? Because you left by the roof. Guests that are pinned on the housetop against their will have a right to knock and ask for an apology. Answered Gandalf. What have you to say now? Oh, so what's your excuse, Saruman? Right? Uh, nothing. Certainly not in your present company. In any case, I have little to add to my words at our last meeting. Um, Certainly not in your present company. You've really come down in the world, Gandalf, uh, uh, being escorted by mindless thugs like that. Um, uh, this is... Uh, so the first draft of Gandalf and Saruman's exchange... This is a, a brilliant exchange. I mean, it's very cunning, uh, and it's very funny... But it's very different, right? As they're exchanging barbs and uh, sort of, you know, each one trying to kind of outmaneuver the other with words. Um, uh, is fascinating, right? But again, the, the Veronica, coming back to the point that you made earlier on, right? It's not about authority, Right. Uh, or, I mean, both of them are sort of trying to claim authority, but we don't get... Gan Gandalf's not playing the authority card, right? Gandalf is still having fun. Um, uh, Saruman 
is making a move there in that first paragraph, but he's not joking. Gandalf is joking as soon as he starts talking. Without leave? I had leave of such gatekeepers as I found. Ha <laughs> ha, gotcha, right? It's like Saruman is trying to really maintain the upper hand and Gandalf keeps twisting things around and saying, gotcha, oh, burn, you know. Um, Gandalf's having way too much fun in this exchange, it seems to me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, John, I do think his, as John Caldwell is asking, uh, are his words here only meant for Gandalf or for the others to hear? Um, uh, even though he's not addressing Theoden and company directly, some of the accusations are designed to sow distrust and uncertainty. Yes, no, we, it's one of the things that we see in this draft is that he never addresses anybody else, right? So he has no discussion with Theoden, no uh, exchanges with Amir or Gimli. Um, it's just a conversation with Gandalf all the way through. So he's not doing that, um, but is some kind of seed of that here? Um, uh, yeah, possibly. Yes. I mean, I, I to answer your initial question there, John, um, I, uh, I do think that uh, he means everybody to hear, right? They're speaking, both of them speaking openly here. Um, yeah, Jennifer, Jennifer Pope says it's like the ancient song battles, except it's an insult battle instead. Uh, yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, oh, and by the way, I, I didn't quote the passage because it was just one little bit, but I put it in my subtitle. Um, in this discussion, Saruman says to Gandalf, we are two members of an ancient profession, right? And it's fascinating because we've been talking about that, right? As we've been talking about wizards in the book so far, I've been arguing from the beginning that wizard is more of a profession. You know, uh, when they talk about Gandalf being a wizard, it's more like, you know, being a, um, you know, being a, being a, 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 a policeman or a, or a, or a, you know, a, physician or you know it's it's your job right it's your it's 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 more of a job description than it is a you know racial sort of spiritual thing it, it, just to call him a wizard doesn't imply that he is from Valinor right uh it implies that he you know is part of the professional wizards association and that's exactly how so I was interested cuz Profession is a word we've been using uh, in talking about wizards. And here we have, for the first time in the text, Saruman uses that word explicitly, um, which is kind of cool. And yes, Megan, it does go back to the whole staff of office remark earlier on. Absolutely. Um, It does... It's like... I'm trying to think of a good parallel, Megan. Uh, a judge talking to the person who is the chief justice, right? Um, they're both professionals. They're both in the same profession. Um, one has a symbol of office, right? And that office grants him authority over the other. Um but he's been, you know, 
found guilty of corruption and he's being thrown out of office now and he has to surrender his staff of office. It's more like that kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> James Liebeck is thinking about the, the, the insults here uh, and is uh, wondering if this means that you can tell they were once good friends because they're insulting each other. It's a really interesting point, James, actually, because, of course... Um, we have seen this correlation, right? We have seen the fact that you, you can tell when people are good friends because of how they insult each other. That's, that's how friends act and how they treat each other in Tolkien's world. That's very clear. It's and, and very British. Um, but, uh, I think the difference here, I guess, James, what I would say to that is you can tell they're not friends because Saruman isn't playing along. Right. And I would go, you know, going back even to the, uh, no, even, you know, even in this uh, description, Gandalf is laughing. I'm not. I don't think Saruman is joking anywhere, right? Um, Saruman is trying to dig at him, right? He's trying to sort of win a rhetorical battle with. Yeah, he's trying to maintain the upper hand from a rhetorical standpoint, but he's not laughing. I think. I think Gandalf is laughing pretty much all the way through. You know, even his own. Uh, um, you can see it even a lot of in his uh, in his word choice, right? Um, penned on the housetop, for instance. Um, the sort of whimsical, am I not a lodger in this inn, right? Um, he's laughing. Saruman is not laughing. Uh, and that's interesting, Josiah. Uh, Perhaps so. Uh, Josiah says Gandalf is trying to treat Saruman as an equal, but Saruman insists on his superiority. Don't joke with me, right? Um, yeah, yeah, perhaps. Perhaps. Um, yeah. Okay. Gandalf laughed. Understand one another? I don't know. But I understand you at any rate, Saruman. Well enough. No, I do not think I will come up. You have an excellent advisor with you, adequate for your understanding. Oh, wow. Wormtongue has cunning enough for two. Oh, shoot. It's not, it's just, you can learn some cunning from Wormtongue, right? Take lessons from your servant there, Saruman. Oh, man. But it had occurred to me that since Isengard is rather a ramshackle place, rather old-fashioned and in need of re renovation and alteration, you might like to leave. Take a holiday, say. If so, will you not come down? A quick, cunning look passed over Saruman's face before he could conceal it. They had a glimpse of mingled fear and relief slash hope. Cunning. They saw through the mask they saw through the mask the face of a trapped man that feared both to stay and to leave his refuge. Um Oh man, the insults. Oh, I just, I, Gandalf is so good at this. So good at this. But, uh, but to me, the really interesting moment is that last part. It had occurred to me that since Isengard is rather a ramshackle place, rather old-fashioned and in need of renovation and alteration, you might like to leave, to take a holiday, say. If so, will you not come down? Um, now, this is interesting in a couple different ways, right? First, of course, again, we have this mockery, right? Um, 
yeah, it's a ramshackle place now, right? Yes, it's in need of renovation. Yeah, because uh, you've been besieged and 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 destroyed, uh, but also in need of alteration, right? And let's face it. It wasn't great before it got wrecked either, right? The changes that you made to it weren't so good, right? Needs to be changed back. Um, rather old-fashioned, right? This whole, like, orc and warg thing is so last year, right? Saruman, I, I you know, this whole uh, iron chains and posts and things is... is no, no, that is... Uh, um, that is very old-fashioned, right? Uh, everyone nowadays is moving towards trees, right? Trees are the rage around here. Quite literally, trees are the rage around Isengard. Oh, that was a really good joke. I wish I'd thought of that on purpose. Um, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can edit that out so that it looks like I was being deliberately clever. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, <laughs> Nancy Fosberg asks, is everyone moving towards trees or are the trees moving towards them? <laughs> That's exactly the question. Uh, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, Anyway, not only do I love this humor and love this as another uh, just delightful example of uh, of Gandalf hilariously mocking Saruman, um, I mean, I just kind of love that in general, but, but more. See the move that he's making here, right? Just as in that first, very first paragraph, right? Saruman is trying to do that whole, like, why are you breaking into the headmaster's office, right? Trying to... Uh, trying to to put him to put Gandalf in that position. Uh, look at the position that Gandalf is essentially offering to Saruman. Right? Saruman has been defeated. He was in the wrong. He has betrayed everybody. He attempted to kill every single person there. Right? And rather than rebuking him, rather than saying Saruman, you must repent. Right? Confess your sins. Repent from them. Get down here on your hands and knees begging for forgiveness and maybe we won't kill you, right? It, they would be totally justified to talk to Saruman that way. Absolutely justified to talk to Saruman that way. Um, but he's not doing that, right? Instead, he's jokingly, mockingly, it's true, um, but he is still kind of giving him an out, right? Inviting him rather than commanding him. Claiming and, and again, Veronica, this is it's exactly passages like this, which were why I was not even I was in a sense forgetting that this was the resurrected Gandalf at all. He just doesn't sound like the resurrected Gandalf, right? Um, he is claiming no authority at all, just offering. I mean, it's not exactly a good faith effort to uh, let Saruman save face. Because he's mocking him at the same time, so I don't want to go too far with that. But, um, uh, but he's definitely um, uh, turning what could be a command into an invitation. Right? Take a holiday, say. Um, Saruman could choose to play along with him, right? 
that option is open. So, and if he did, if Saruman was like, if Saruman responded to this, if the result of his quick, cunning calculation was to play along and to try to help out, he could say, he could respond to this by saying, you know, this place is a bit washed up, right? Uh, you know, I have this uh, horrible infestation, right? Uh, I need to get an exterminator in, uh, so I think I will uh, accept your invitation and uh, uh, take a holiday, right? Uh, will you look after the place while I'm gone? Maybe water the plants, uh, right? He could, he could, he could do that, right? And if he did that, presumably he would be allowed to leave, and he would be leaving without admitting any guilt or apologizing, right? So, although, again, Gandalf is mocking him all the way through, um, there does seem to be a level in which he's legitimately being given a way to to leave without having to humble himself, right? Um, Michelle, yeah, I do think that he would get out of this with at least a few shreds of dignity. I do. Um, Yeah. Now, Megan... I agree with you that it is a very subtle assertion of Gandalf's authority, right? That he has the authority to invite. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, but again, but as you say, very subtle, right? This is not, uh, uh, I am not Gandalf the Grey whom you betrayed, right? Um, I cast you from the Order and from the Count. I mean, how far away is this? Uh, I thought you might like to leave to take holiday, Right? How far is that from I cast you from the order and the council? Right? I mean, we are uh, long, long distances from that. Um, yeah, yeah. Since the, uh, and then the uh, Orthong stone gets thrown out the window uh, and shatters on the steps. Right? In uh, in, as Donna uh, was saying much earlier, in this sort of shocking moment, right? When you're like, it's the Palantir! Oh! <laughs> okay! Uh, there, there, there it goes. There, there, there goes the Palantir. Um, yeah. Anyway, so Christopher comments and says, since there's no evidence at all that the conception of the Palantir had arisen at any earlier stage or in any earlier writing, this must be presumed to be its first appearance. Brief, however it is, right? Um, But the draft does not make it clear whether my father perceived its nature at the moment of its introduction as Wormtongue's missile. Gandalf does not say what he thought of it, nor hint that it might be a device of importance to Saruman. In his letter to W.H. Auden of 7 June 1955, uh, which is, of course, uh, the year after The Fellowship of the Ring is published, my father said, immediately following the passage from that letter cited at the beginning of The Return of the Shadow, I knew nothing of the Palantiri. Uh, That letter, by the way, that's the famous letter where he talks about, like, he had no idea who that guy in the Inet Brie was, right? You you, you may remember that famous letter. Um, But anyway... He says, I knew nothing of the Palantiri, though the moment the Orthanc stone was cast from the window, I recognized it, and knew the meaning of the rhyme of lore that had been running in my mind, seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. Um, and, uh, and I love that. You know, I love that, um, in that classic Tolkienian way, right, he says, I finally knew the meaning of this, right? I, I discovered what this thing meant. This rhyme... 
this line of you know verse was going through my head seven stars and seven stones and one white tree and I didn't know what it meant and now I finally figured out what it meant um, yeah yeah uh, but Christy I was thinking exactly the same thing Christy Simonson uh, says we never do get an explanation of the seven stars do we no and I have thought and talked about that quite a bit lately especially of course in some of my Lord of the Rings online explorations uh, when I've been looking at a lot of Arnorian ruins which feature clusters of seven stars all over the place right as of course the Lotro designers also are remembering that line um but I don't know exactly what the seven stars mean, either. Um, seven stones. The white tree, we know. The seven stones, we know. The seven stars, we don't know. But, Christy, it strikes me that this might explain why I don't know the answer to the seven stars, right? Um, and it suggests to me that Tolkien is telling is, is being completely truthful, being completely accurate in his memory here, right? Um, it would make total sense, in other words, if that line of verse, seven stars and seven stones and one white tree, came to him first, and he knew what the white tree was, and soon figured out, soon discovered what the seven stones were, but never fully discovered what the seven stars were. I can totally imagine that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is possible Nancy, uh, to- Nancy and Tony are both thinking of constellations, Nancy suggesting that it was the Great Bear. Possibly. I mean, yeah, it could be. I mean, the, 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 the Great Bear, which is, of course, not the Great Bear in Middle-earth, it's the sickle of the Valar, uh, placed in the north ab- that is above Morgoth's, you know, where Morgoth's uh, uh, realm was uh, as a sign of his downfall, right? Um, so, yeah... But those were never particularly associated with Numenor, right? In what sense were the seven stars and seven stones and one white tree, right? What brought... Remember, that line is in the verse, the answer to the question, what brought they from the foundered land over the flowing sea? Answer, seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. So there's really no sense in which they brought, you know, the Big Dipper with them. Um, So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't... Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. I still don't know what the what the what the stars are. Um, what else are they talking? Oh, the Palantir, right? Okay, so 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 the Palantir bursts literally <laughs> onto the scene. Boy, I'm full of this humor tonight. Uh, the Palantir bursts onto the scene, um, and um, uh, uh, breaks. The end, but it does seem that as soon as it happens, Tolkien has a notion, right? So let's watch this notion grow in Tolkien's mind because it's really fun. Um, not likely, answered Gandalf. But I had reasons for trying. I do not wish for mastery. Saruman has been given a last choice and a fair one. He has chosen to withhold Orthanc at least from us, for that is his last asset. He knows that we have no power to destroy it from without or to enter it against his will, yet it might have been useful to us. But things have not gone badly. Set a thief to hinder a thief. Struck out, and malice blinds the wits. I fancy that if we could have come in, we should have found few treasures in Orthanc more precious than the thing which the fool Wormtongue tossed down to us. Uh, because, of course, in a, in a quick second draft, the Palantir does not break, but the stairs break under it instead. 
A shrill shriek suddenly cut off from an open window, came from an open window high above. I thought so, said Gandalf. Now let us go. So, in this quick, um, in this quick, uh, change, right? This, this second draft, uh, when the Palantir does not break, we quickly get the idea that Wormtongue is thrown away, has in it, you know, unwittingly thrown away something very valuable, and the scream of Saruman suggesting that that is true, right? Um, and yet, and so this would seem to imply that, like, the full story of the Palantir is right there, and the link to Mordor and everything else, but it's quite clear from the later drafting that that's not the case at all, right? He has not at all figured out the story. Um, notice, though, so as we're tracing the development of the Palantir, obviously this is a really important passage, but notice one thing in passing here. When Gandalf talks about what are his reasons for trying to do what he did, right? To offer Saruman a chance to repent, a chance to join them and to help. Um, he says he doesn't wish for mastery. That's one reason why, right? Because he's not just going to come and claim authority over the dude, right? He would like to work with him. Um, he was given a last choice and a fair one. He knows that we have no power to destroy it from without, Orthanc, that is, or to enter it against his will, yet it might have been useful to us, right? That's really interesting. Orthanc might have been useful to Gandalf and company. I wonder how. I don't know how. What use would Gandalf have put Orthanc to? I mean, I'm not saying that, like, having an impregnable tower isn't handy, right? But it's surely a bit out of the way, right? They're not thinking of holding up here, right? Finding a defensible position doesn't seem to be in Gandalf's plans. Um... I don't know what Gandalf is thinking when he says that there. Um, but, Yana, I agree. It does... Uh, this does sound like a leader of the Order wanting to reconcile things. He doesn't want to have to kick Saruman out of the Order. Yeah, I agree with you with that. Um, And I agree, Michelle, it doesn't sound like Gandalf necessarily has a, a concrete plan there. Um, it's just I would think of all of the possible... Um, of all the possible benefits that would come of Saruman coming over to their side, the usefulness of Orthanc itself would seem to me to be kind of fairly low down that list, right? Um, yeah, I wonder. Kimber, that's a really interesting suggestion. Kimber says they could hole up there and pretend to be setting up a stronghold from which to wield the ring. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? To try to make Sauron think that they have the ring way over here. At Orthanc, right? Um, come get me, Sauron. Which would not only... And not only would Orthanc be a really good place from which to do that, uh, because they could hold out for a long time, um, 
But of course, obviously, geographically, it would clear the way for Frodo a lot better, right? Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, and Tony, I agree, malice blinds the wits is a great proverb, right? Uh, I agree with you, Tony. Let's see if we can bring that back as a proverb. Let's, uh, um, uh, yeah, malice blinds the wits. Um, let's see, let's see if we can use that proverb on Twitter in the next couple days, except proviso. Um, it has to be employed in a way that has nothing to do with Donald Trump. Uh, because too much of Twitter uh, does have to do with Donald Trump. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. But uh, in other cases, absolutely. Let's see if we can apply it. Um, let's see. Um, yeah. Oh, let's see. Okay. Yeah, Josiah, thinking of the seven stars, is thinking of how... Uh, Seven stars were about it, and a high crown above it, the signs of a lendil that no lord had borne for years beyond count in the district in the description of Aragorn's banner at the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Yeah, that that it's a symbol of the Numen of you know of Elendil and his people is is clear. I agree. Um, but why why are seven stars the symbol of Elendil? That's what I don't understand. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um, Okay. Okay, let's see. Um, oh, Timdoff was suggesting the same thing about setting up a, a, a sort of a fake rivalry uh, to Sauron as a decoy. Yeah, yeah, Tim, exactly. Okay. All right, so... So the real question becomes, all right, so we have this concept of Wormtongue throwing down something valuable and Saruman knowing it's valuable, but Wormtongue obviously not knowing that it's valuable. So what does that mean? What does that tell us then about the status of the Palantir in Tolkien's mind at this point, right? Um, yeah, yeah. This was the Orthonk Stone, written above Orthonk Stone, Orthonk stone with a K. Orthonk stone uh, with an Ev, which is good. Um, Orthonkstan, right? Just uh, putting it in uh, putting it in Anglo-Saxon. Uh, which kept watch on movements in a neighborhood, but its range was limited to some 100 leagues. It will help to keep watch on Orthonk from afar. Okay. So the power of the Palantir is that it enables you to keep watch. So it's a seeing stone, Right. We get that right away. It's a seeing stone. Um, but it's a seeing stone with a limited range. All it does is just enable you to see around, right? It is a seeing stone. It is not a communications device. Or at least there's no hint of that here, right? Night comes swiftly. They come to the fords. This is, of course, another one of his outlines. They come to the fords and note the river is failing and running dry again. The starry night they cross and pass the mounds. They halt under the stars and see the great black shadow passing between them and stars. Nazgul. Gandalf takes out large globe and looks at it. Good, he said. It shows little by night. That is a comfort. All they could see was stars and far away, small bat-like shapes wheeling. At the edge was a river in the moon. The moon is already visible in Osgiliath, said Gandalf. That seems the edge of sight. 
Okay, so Gandalf looks into the stone. Uh, he says, the stone's going to be useful because we can use it to see things up to 100 leagues around us, right? And then he takes out the stone and looks at it. After the Nazgul, so the Nazgul passes by. Gandalf's first impulse, whoosh, he whips out the, the Orthanx because he's got, yeah, he's got like a magic telescope mic, right? Um, so he, um, uh, all, he, all he can see is uh, stars and small bat-like shapes wheeling far away. So you can see the winged Nazgul, most of them, but most of them are really far away, right? So this is a loner that just flew above them. Uh, L-O-N-E-R, not L-O-A-N-E-R. They haven't borrowed uh, the Nazgul. But anyway, um, so on the edge was a river in the moon. So he can see Anduin. He can see Osgiliath. Um, uh, and I love the time zone thing, right? Gandalf pointing out that in Osgiliath, the moon is already visible, right? Even though here the moon isn't, isn't, isn't up yet, right? Uh, that's, uh, that's really fun. Um, but uh, <laughs> Josiah says Gandalf gets a mini-map. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah good. Oh, you're right, James. James Leback points out, no, uh, the Nazgul is riding a loner fell beast because he got his other one shot out from under him, so he had to get a loner. Yeah, fair, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, okay, so, and uh, the the good he said it shows little by night. I I, I find puzzling. He can't mean, he can't mean. Uh, you can't see much in it at night, right? Because that's what's good about that. He has it, right? So he's not going to look at it and see, like, ah, I can see almost nothing. Good, right? <laughs> no, he wants to see something, right? So he can't mean that. So I have to think that he... The only thing that he... Uh, uh, the only thing that it means is... Shows in the other sense. It shows little by night, meaning it will not show us up. So... Because, of course, it's pitch dark, right? So if he pulls out the, the Palantir, it could glow really brightly or something. And therefore, the Nazgul flying up above could see them. Like, oh, what is that shining beacon of Palantir over there, right? Um, so I think when he says it shows little by night, it means, like, it doesn't show up in the night, right? It doesn't show up in the darkness, is how I understand that. Um, exactly. It's not, it's, not, it's not glowing. It's not like... Um, uh, you know, suddenly your iPhone turning on in the middle of a dark room, for instance. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, I don't see any reason to think, Yana, that he's thinking of reciprocity with other stones in that, like, by, by saying that here. But soon that prospect is going to come up, but it hasn't yet. Um, okay. As they draw near Helm's Deep, a shadow comes up like a mist. Suddenly they hear a rustling whisper, and on both sides, uh, uh, b- both sides of them, so that they are in a lane, shadows pass away northward. Who horns? Okay, so we've got the shadow up above, the Nazgul, we've got the who horns passing them by on the ground. Insert now page three of chapter 29. This is the description of what happens in Helm's Deep and how the who horns left. Right, um, and uh, as you can see in Christopher's notes, that page kind of wanders around until it finally finds its home. Um, uh, next day, they ride with many men in the Westfold Vale, and 
by paths winding among the mountains. They strike the Dunharrow Ravine on the second day and find folk streaming back to Eodorus. Aragorn rides with Eowyn. You sly dog, you. Yeah, um, er, er, we've had some fairly heavy hinting about Aragorn and Eowyn, right? Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, the fact that he's thinking about making a big deal about them riding together makes a lot of sense based on what we saw before. Uh, Gandalf looks at the dark crystal on the terrace before King's house. They see quite clearly Orthanc, Ents moving, water all very small and clear, uh, uh, horsemen riding over the plain from west and north, strange figures of various kind from Minas Tirith. It only shows lights and men, no country. That's interesting. Um, so, okay. But see, now, Yana, I don't think it does hint at reciprocity at all. He's worried, he's using it as a way to see remote places, right? Gandalf is. He's worried about him being seen looking into it by somebody up in the sky, right? But not he's not worried about the landscape looking back at him, right? Um, I, I, I don't see any hint of that here. It's coming soon, but I don't see it yet. Um, uh, this concept, it only shows lights and men and no country. Uh is really interesting. I don't, uh, um, I'm not sure I, I can picture that exactly. Um, how would you even know where they were if you couldn't see any of the countryside? Is it, I mean, are we imagining that it's just like you look in and you just see like a gray, completely blank landscape with people on it? Um, Or maybe, yeah, Margaret Joyce is saying uh, uh, it sounds like the Marauder's Map. Maybe. Maybe it would work like that in some sense. Um, that is more of a sort of a... a, a that it, what, it would see, what you would see would look more like a map than like a, a, a you know, a, a view of the countryside. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, Stephen, maybe that's it. Maybe it's too dark to see anything but the lights and the men illuminated by the lights. Possibly. Possibly. And, you know, Yana, I was thinking exactly the same thing. When I'm trying to picture how it could show you only lights and men and no country, um, it makes me think exactly of... uh, like those times when you log into a video game like Lord of the Rings Online and you get some, like the, the the terrain graphics files don't load instantly and you're just seeing the, yeah, that's exactly what I was picturing, but I can't imagine that's what Tolkien was picturing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, still discussion about the seven stars going on. Uh, so, yes, again, yes, the stars are the symbols of Elendil. I know, but what do they mean? Why are the seven stars the symbol of Elendil? Um, could they be? Could it be that Elendil took the sickle of the Valar as his symbol? Maybe, yeah, but there's nothing to suggest that. I, I don't see that suggested anywhere, and and even then, it doesn't seem to me to fit. Even if the if they are merely heraldry heraldry if their if their if their significance is purely heraldic 
only heraldic. It doesn't make any sense in that line. Um, what did they bring from the foundered land over the falling sea? Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. Three groups of items, right? Two of them are physical things. They brought a physical tree with them. Yes, the tree is also their symbol, but they didn't bring a symbol. They brought a tree, right? And they brought seven stones. So they've got seven physical stones. They've got one white tree. What are the seven stars? Symbols, right? What, on his banners? Sure, yeah. He's also going to bring white trees on his banners, but so what? Um, anyway, so I, do, I don't, I don't, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to fit, it doesn't seem to answer the question. And no, nowhere is that, uh, uh, is that link between the seven stars of Elendil and, uh, uh, and the sickle um, of the Valar made explicit. Do we even know? Uh, I don't know. I mean, so yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm dubious. I'm dubious. Um, yeah, yeah, um, but sorry, okay, uh, end of seven stars discussion, let's keep going on, and the dark crystal, right, the dark crystal, Gandalf looks at the dark crystal, uh, I don't know why I'm so amused by calling the Palantir the dark crystal, uh, but I am. I can't help it. Okay. I said that Isengard was overthrown and the stone was going on a journey, said Gandalf, and that I would... Uh, oh, so this now, uh, Yana, is where we have uh, reciprocity finally coming in, right? So Gandalf is looking in the stone and talking to somebody, right? I said that Isengard was overthrown and the stone was going on a journey and that I would look uh, change to, would speak to it again later when I could, but at the moment I was in a hurry. <laughs> First of all, how awesome is that? How awesome is that, right? Uh, if this, is this Sauron? Is this Sauron that, that Gandalf is talking to? It's like, hey Sauron, yeah, so Isengard is overthrown, right? And this stone is going on a little trip, if you know what I mean. Right. Okay. No. Sorry. I'm sorry. Sauron. I. I. No. I'm sorry. I'm. I've. I've got an appointment right now. I'll talk to you later. Right. But seriously, come on now. Um, that's. Uh, that's hilarious. I think that's hilarious. Um, uh, yep. Uh, I'll get back to you later on. Um, Jennifer Pope says this is the Palantir equivalent of, oh, sorry, I'm cutting out. I'll call you back, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that's 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 pretty awesome. Um, yeah. Um, it's, it, uh, it's just, I, I really... Uh, that's one of my favorite of the, you know... Of the scenes that have ended up on the cutting room floor, that's definitely on my short list. Not in the same way as like the awesome scenes from the Battle of uh, of of Helm's Deep, you know, the first drafts of that. But um, but yeah, the just just for pure comedy value. Um, uh, I mean, in fact, really, that whole sequence sounds like it should be an ex-KCD comment or, or a, a, a comic or something. I mean, I know he's a big Tolkien fan. Uh, totally should work. Um, <laughs> your volunteer message is very important to us. 
Arthur says. Yeah. It's like he's telling Sauron that his uh, their conversation might be recorded for quality assurance purposes. Um, but Brian, I absolutely agree. Um, Gandalf has no hesitation in using the Palantir uh, at the beginning, right? And of course, Brian, you can see why that should be, right? At the very beginning, he uh, he doesn't hesitate to use it because it's just an eyepiece, right? It's just a telescope, as Mike said. Um, he's he's looking into it just in order to see the land about him. It's not a two-way communications device. And as Christopher was pointing out, it's fascinating to see that Tolkien seems to be kind of slow to make this connection, right? He, on the one hand, is saying, there's this Palantir, what does it do? And he, um, so like, in the one hand, he's holding the problem, I've got this magical globe with unknown powers, what do I make it do? And in the other hand, he's holding the problem, there was some form of communication, some mechanism for communication between Orthanc and, and, and Baradur that we've not yet puzzled out, right? Gandalf is already saying that. And he, he, it takes him a long time to kind of put these two things together and make what to us looks like the obvious uh, step of, uh, of, of connecting them together. Um, uh, it's sort of fascinating to me that he doesn't... that he did take a while, you know? So why should it? I mean, it's not that he's just, like, being slow on the uptake or something here. He seems to... The only thing that I can think of is that he's sort of resistant to that idea, right? That he doesn't want there to be a mechanism. Because it gets, those two problems so obviously seem complementary to each other. Um, is there some reason why he would not take that step? Um, I don't know coming into wild, very wild speculations here, but um, could he have actually been resistant to having the Palantir be essentially just a long-distance communications device? I mean, we're making all these jokes about cell phones and stuff. Could that be exactly what Tolkien was wanting to resist? Not cell phones, obviously, he didn't know about those. Um, but but he did know about telephones, right? Um, did he not want this just to be a piece of technology? Right, exactly, Mungly, too telephone-like, right? Um, he didn't want it just to be... Uh, um, yeah, yeah, Mike, you're right. It's like a combination of the telephone and the television. Two pieces of modern technology that Tolkien didn't like very much, right? Um, so, yeah, not to mention, Christy, as you say, it creates some other potential uh, problems, you know, removing tension to know what everyone is doing too easily. You know, Christy, it's, it's, it's interesting that you should mention that, Um a discussion we had earlier on this year um, in my Silmarillion Film Project uh, podcast series, uh, where we're going through and, and doing our theoretical adaptation of the Silmarillion into a TV series. And um, we had a discussion about this, because we're like, Feanor made the, the Palantiri, right? So did he bring any with him, right? Would he have had some of the Palantiri with him? Because, uh, you know, he might have done, right? He would have brought it with him if he had him. Uh, right, and we immediately decided, no way, man. 
we can, if we have if there are Palantir if they have Palantiri in the first age if uh, if if the folks in Beleriand had Palantiri that I mean imagine you know Turgon being able to just dial up uh, Fingon and be like hey man how's it going over there in Dor Lomond oh yeah no things are chilling in Gondolin right we're good I mean it makes things very it totally changes the story right it's sort of disastrous for the plot uh, if you can do that. Um, so yeah, it, it's I, I I can see lots of reasons why he would kind of hesitate to do that. I have no idea why Tolkien actually hesitated. Um, maybe, yeah, I don't really know. But um, uh, notice his response here. His immediate response, Alcdor, he says, right. This is noting that he is saying. I love how he differentiates in his own hand his own thoughts from the thoughts of Gandalf. He doesn't want to mistake his own observation for Gandalf's observation later on. So he labels it auctor, which just means author in Latin. Um, no, I think the Dark Globe to be in contact with Mordor is too like the rings. Huh. Gandalf discovers that the Orthanc Stone is a far seer, but he could not make out how to use it. It seemed capricious. It seems still to be looking in the directions in which it was last used, he said. Hence, vision of the added seven Nazgul above the battlements, the bat-like creature circling around. He was looking towards Mordor. So, it's been looking east. He's still looking east. He's not looking any further than Osgiliath, right? And that's where he looks to east Osgiliath and sees the seven Nazgul circling above the ruins of Osgiliath. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um... Um, so his so we we were noticing Brian you were pointing out how you know Gandalf uses them without a qualm or a concern at the beginning right at first it's because their job was simpler they were just they were farseers Right. Notice now how he's trying to complicate this by making them hard to use, right? Uh, difficult to master, um, capricious. Uh, he can't make out how to use it, right? So we're going to limit Gandalf's usage of it that way. But to me, by far the most fascinating element here is that the dark glo- making the dark globe to be in contact with Mordor is too like the rings. I'm not sure I understand that. How does establishing the link between using the Palantir as the link between Orthanc and Mordor make it the globe too like the rings? I don't know. Stephen is wondering is it, you know, because of the way the ring controls all other rings? Maybe. Temptation of power? Yes. Terra, but yeah, but see, I mean, it has, I mean, it can do things, right? So there's always going to be temptation of power in it, but it's, it's the, it's the contact with Mordor, specifically, that leads him to say it's too like the rings, it would seem. Um, James Lebeck is thinking that it's just sort of another tool of the Dark Lord, right? To, to make it into yet another tool of the Dark Lord. Um, 
Sauron can sense Galadriel, James Stevens, that's true, but he can do that without the ring. The ring's not used for that, right? It's not the mechanism of the ring. Um, yeah, Matthew, I think you've got it. I think you've got it. This is what I'm thinking, too, now. I, I, I Yeah, yeah, that seems right to me. Matthew Hershenrutter says... The reason they can't use the rings is because they're corrupted by Sauron. He doesn't want to use the same narrative device to keep his characters from using the Palantiri willy-nilly. Yes. So if we say we can't use the ring because we'll be corrupted by the power of, you know, by the by the the evil of Sauron that is within them, we can't look into the Palantiri because we'll be corrupted by the evil of Sauron. Um, yeah, that seems to me more along the lines that 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 makes sense of it for me Matthew um because it is true if you think like the way in which the palantir is used as the instrument of Saruman's corruption it's not identical in any way to the way that the ring is used as the mechanism for people's corruption but it's not wholly unlike either right um yeah yeah yeah, it seems to me to work. Um, okay, cool. Can one see back? Possibly, said Gandalf. So here he has, and by see back, when I first read that, I thought that that meant can you see back into the past, right? Because remember, Gandalf talks about that to Pippin in the published text, right? That he wishes he could look back and and see the the unimaginable mind of Feanor at work, right? Um, so I thought when somebody was asking if one can see back that that's what they meant. Um, but Christopher points out, and I, I, I'm sure he's right, uh, that by see back they mean is it a two-way communications device, not just a one-way, right? Um, is it a is it a video phone or is it just a telescope or a, just a telescope? Um, possibly, said Gandalf. It is perilous, but I have a mind to use it. He stands back. He has been seen bending over it. No, he said, this is an ancient stone set in an upper chamber of the tower long, long ago, before the Dark Tower was strong. It was used by the Warden of Gondor. One also must have been in the Hornburg, and in Minas Tirith, and in Minas Morgul, and in Osgiliath. Five. They saw the Hornburg. They saw Minas Tirith. They saw Nazgul above the battlements of Osgiliath. So Saruman learned some of his news, he said. Okay, so... By five, that's it's clearly not. I, 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 you know, Christopher argues, and again, I strongly agree with him. By the five in parentheses, there doesn't suggest there are only five Palantiri. <coughs> Sorry, rather, it means that five of the seven Palantiri are in Gondor, and only two of them are up in the north. And remember, the North Kingdom isn't even really a thing anymore, or rather, it was nothing but a city in exile. When the Numenorians got kicked out of Gondor, they went and they built their little city, which is going to become Fornost, um, up in the north. But it was never like, and the two realms formed kind of in parallel. That's not yet in the story. So it makes sense that five of the Seven Rings would be in the south, and only two of them would have wandered up into the north. Um, uh, yeah, so... Um, Anyway, notice what is developing here. And this would seem to be following up on the rejection of, like, not making it want to be too ring-like, right? It's not going to be made by Sauron, right? Or influenced by Sauron. Um, where does it come from? 
the Numenorians, right? From Numenor. They brought it from Numenor, right? So this is a Numenorian device. Um, uh, oh, did I... I said two of the rings ended up north. Sorry, Yana. Two of the stones. That is what I meant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Jennifer, why the Hornberg and not uh, Edoras? Because the uh, it was the Hornberg that was uh, uh, a Gondorian structure. Yeah, Edoras is just established by the Rohirrim. Uh, this would predate the Rohirrim. Because, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a Numenorian thing. Um, what was I going to say? Oh. Apart from the fact that it's getting late and I should end soon because I'm keeping you late now. Uh, oh, but darn it, there was something... Uh, oh, yeah, Numenor, that's it. Okay, so... Thinking back to televisions and telephones again. Those of you who have been doing this with me for a while, remember that stuff from The Lost Road? There are implications in the, new, in the older Numenorean legends that the Isle of Numenor becomes great. When the Numenorean army comes to Middle-earth and daunts Sauron into surrendering, it is not just mightier than Sauron's armies in that they are more numerous or have, like, slightly better armor, or something like that. But that... And Brian Dimmick is thinking exactly the same thing. The Numenorians are technologically advanced. Um, the armies of Sauron run because the Numenorians, when they... They have cannons and things, okay? Uh, like, th they are... Um, uh, technologically advanced compared to the rest of Middle-earth. So they're not just mightier in some kind of purely physical sense. They're technologically advanced. The Palantiri appear to be here in this conception a piece of Numenorean technology. Uh, I'm not saying that he's deliberately thinking that they're like televisions or telephones, but... Um, but, uh, but yeah, just like vibranium, Kate, exactly, right. Uh, uh, sort of, no, not anything like vibranium, in fact, but, uh, uh, but, but, but yes, Yana, there is indeed a version of Numenor with airships. Yes, yes, there are, there, 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 there are, exactly. Um, and it's clear that the ships that go to attack Valinor, in at least one or two versions, are not sail sailing ships. Um, they're like steamers and stuff. They've got smoke is coming from them, uh, and is one of the things that is obscuring, uh, you know, uh, uh, Teleresia as they go by. Um, but um, but Brian Sieg, that's it's one of the things that makes it complicated, though, isn't it? Right. Um, the technical advancement of Numenor, as Brian Dimmick is pointing out, was not a positive in Tolkien's mind. I agree, not at all a positive in Tolkien's mind. Um, and so it makes the Palantir uh, an intrinsically dubious thing. 
but dubious Brian in a different way than the ring, right? Not in the sense of corrupting, you know, the corrupting influence. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And I was, I, I want to point this out because he seems clear, at least for a while, He's, we're going to get to Feanor before too long, right? He's going to bring up the Feanor concept that they're made by Feanor originally. That is, he's going to he's going to turn them into a piece of elvish magic, uh, of elvish craftsmanship, rather than uh, um, rather than a piece of Numenorean technology. But it not only makes sense that they would be have been made by the Numenoreans. Because you know the Numenorians brought them over, and so why wouldn't they have made them? Um, but if they had, this is the this is the category they would be in, right? Not uh, not magic, but technology. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Um, all right, I will. I will stop there. I got pretty close. Yeah. Still got a little bit more, but I got to stop. We'll fit, well, we, we got we got a couple more things on the Palantiri, uh, and then I still have my ant comment. Oops, lights flickering. Not good. We're having a big uh, snowstorm in the middle of a big blizzard up here. Uh, very heavy, wet snow. I'm expecting to lose. I've been expecting to lose power all night. Uh, so I think I'm going to stop while I'm ahead before the lights go out. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. I will see you guys next week uh, as we will continue to move forward and totally not get further and further behind. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me. See you guys next week. Bye.